I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a face of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You've been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is use every eighth episode of this podcast to talk about Smallville. You see, ladies and gentlemen, I follow a pretty simple format for this show. I get six episodes where I talk about pretty much whatever I want. The seventh episode, at least historically, has... That's always been a vehicle for me to get together with Chris Honeywell to talk about weird stuff. The eighth episode, as I say, is all about Smallville, and then after that, I start all over again with another six episodes about anything I want, a seventh episode with Honeywell, another Smallville episode, and so it goes. Now, about a year-ish ago, I began yammering about Smallville Phase 2, because If you were so inclined, you could view the first three seasons of Smallville as Phase 1. And Smallville Phase 2 starts with the dreaded fourth season and then goes right on through to the end of the sainted seventh season. As it goes for the fifth season, though, Clark's already covered a fair amount of ground this season. He decided to give up his powers back in the episode Arrival, which is to say the premiere, and... Under the circumstances, his decision to forsake his powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men is totally understandable. I mean, the guy's been through a whole lot of bullshit, especially lately, and it's mostly been trouble that wouldn't have happened if not for the fact that he has powers. But what he ultimately discovers is that he needs his powers, and on top of that, the town of Smallville needs him to have his powers. Two whole episodes were spent on teaching Clark that lesson, people. It isn't small potatoes. 
In Aqua, Clark began to realize that he's opposed to Lex Luthor. That's the bad news. The good news is there are ways of confronting Lex that don't necessarily require Clark to use his powers, and this is the first time that Clark's begun considering that the pen might be mightier than the sword. And that's an important thing for Clark Kent to understand. In the episode Thirst, well, honestly, the less said there, the better. In Exposed, Clark's major takeaway lesson is that no matter what life throws at him, they're still right and they're still wrong. If Clark was a, was a more bitter and jaded person, the events of the episode Exposed, which I talked about in my last Season 5 retrospective, would have destroyed him. But they didn't. Instead, Clark seized upon the victories that he was able to win during that episode, and he was at least able to exonerate Jack Jennings. He was at least able to arrange for Mr. Lyons to get arrested by Interpol, and he was at least able to solidify his relationship with Lois by saving her from being smuggled off in a human trafficking ring. Clark didn't allow himself to be overwhelmed by Jack's corruption or by Mr. Lyon getting away with tons of other crimes. Sometimes in life, all you can manage are the small victories. Back in season one, Clark wouldn't have been able to tolerate the events of Exposed, but what we're seeing here in the fifth season is a, is a sort of older and sort of wiser Clark Kent scoring the victories that he can and not worrying that he can't always perfectly deliver perfect justice perfectly every single time perfectly. What really counts in the end is that Clark puts a premium on friends, family, love, and loyalty. And those are the values that sustained him during Exposed as an episode. Another big issue, though, is that Clark is still very attached to his human life. Brainiac tried to drive a wedge between Clark and mankind two different ways during two different episodes. I speak here of the episodes Splinter and Solitude, but each time Brainiac was defeated because Clark wouldn't give up on his human life and for their own part, his human life wouldn't give up on Clark. Now, this is a positive development. For now. But the time's gonna come when Clark's commitment to the pretense of being human will be his greatest weakness. But for right now, that's really the only thing that saved the world. Moving right along, Lexmas was an overall more fun episode at least for Clark's participation. He got to play the role of Santa Claus for Metropolis for one night. For Lex's part, though, this is the first concrete, unmistakable sign that Lex is sliding toward the dark side. And the thing about it is, this isn't a decision that Lex is making arbitrarily. The events of the past five seasons have taken their toll on him. It's a logical decision for Lex to make under the circumstances. To circle back to Clark, though, Reckoning was Smallville's 100th episode, and a lot of interesting things were set down. For one thing, Jonathan Kent is dead. For two things, Jonathan Kent is dead. 
And the bad news is it's all Clark's fault. Up to now, Clark has usually been able to save the day. But even on those occasions when he failed, the casualty was usually a stranger. Those losses don't hit all that close to home for Clark when you really come right down to it. But this time, Clark's poor decision-making saved Lana, sure, but they come at the expense of Jonathan Kent's life. If Clark hadn't told Lana his secret, she wouldn't have died in the alternate timeline. But saving her life allowed Jonathan to have his big confrontation with Lionel Luther in the barn, the strain of which gave him a heart attack. And Jonathan's heart was only weak because of Clark and his decisions that he'd made in previous seasons. No matter how you look at it, Clark owns this. And the specter of Jonathan's death is going to haunt Clark for a long time to come. But something else happened in Reckoning that doesn't really get a whole lot of play among fans. It was reestablished that Clark has a particular superpower. And at least as far as I know, this is a superpower that's unique to Smallville. Back in the episode Hereafter from the Mighty Season 3, we viewers discover that Clark has the ability to save people from their own fate. If push comes to shove, Clark's will is more powerful even than the forces of destiny. Not only is that a superpower that no other incarnation of Superman has ever been shown to have, at least that I'm familiar with, it has the effect of making every single rescue that Clark performs a sort of divine intervention. It truly is a miracle when Clark saves someone's life in Smallville. What I'm saying here is that it was Lana's destiny to die in Reckoning's original timeline, but Clark, over, uh, Clark overruled that through sheer force of will. But the blowback from doing so was the death of Jonathan Kent, but that's not all. Much later on, Clark's ability to shape fate as he sees fit gets a huge payoff. But that's much later on. In the here and now, I've said that Smallville Phase 2 begins in the dreaded Season 4. The start of Phase 2 is marked by Smallville starting to reach its visual zenith. From the dreaded 4th season through the end of the sainted 7th season, Smallville had never looked this good before, and for the most part, it had never looked this good again either. As an example, I point back to... I would say basically any of the Fortress of Solitude scenes from the first four episodes of this season, the fifth season. There's really nothing that exists in the real world that in any way resembles the Fortress of Solitude scenes that we've seen up to this point, but man, those scenes are gorgeous, are they not? Speaking of which, Smallville's days as a relatively grounded uh, type of show are basically behind us. From here on in, the series is going to become more and more fantasy-oriented as time goes by. That was true starting with the dreaded fourth season, and it's reinforced during the fifth, uh, the fifth season, both in terms of story, but especially in terms of cinematography and visuals. Smallville Phase 2 got off to a pretty rocky start with the dreaded season four, and there's really no denying that, but this is still Smallville's prime. 
and not just from an aesthetic standpoint either. Everything that makes Smallville awesome can be found to some degree or another, starting in the dreaded fourth season, going right on through to the sainted seventh season. So without question, Smallville Phase 2 is my favorite era of this show. And with the fifth season, we're finally talking about quality material. As a result, what I've discovered is I'm a lot more excited about these Smallville retrospectives than I've ever been before. Anyway, now, apart from all that stuff, I've checked the dates on all of these things. The stuff that you're about to hear in the second segment, boys and girls, that stuff was recorded back in 2015. 15. That's one, five. It's strange to believe that I was able to get so much done back then, but apparently I was. And now you know. Anyway. So that's that stuff. Now, last time I finished up my comments with episode 12, Reckoning. And you know what that means. It's time for a break. Be right back to resume the discussion about Smallville Season 5, beginning with episode 13, Vengeance, after these messages. Thirty years ago, I walked into a comic store, and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. Okay, I'm back now and continuing my analysis of Smallville's fifth season. In the last retrospective, I suggested that the time was coming soon when Smallville would shed its old skin and become something new. The batch of episodes that we're talking about this time around begin that process in a big bad way. Smallville's in the process of being retooled for the future so that it can sustain 
additional seasons beyond this fifth season. So, totally apart from the character dynamics that were left on the table at the end of Reckoning, Goff and Miller are doing more mechanical things like slowly creating new storylines, new themes, and new conflicts to carry the show into the future. And that all starts with episode 13, Vengeance. Clark mourns for Jonathan and seeks revenge for Martha getting mugged, and Jonathan's watch getting stolen when he meets the Angel of Vengeance, a superpowered vigilante of Metropolis who's got a lot of the same problems that Clark does. This is a pretty big step for Smallville. In previous seasons, Al Goff and Miles Miller really didn't get carried away too much with comic book stuff. This episode, Vengeance, is the first example of them breaking with tradition. And honestly, I don't think that's an accident. I ended the last retrospective by saying that Reckoning represents Goff and Miller breaking away from what Smallville had been and starting something new. After that, I speculated that the cause for all of that, this whole change of pace that we're going through, came from the realization that Smallville was going at least as far as season six. Now, in the real world right now, we all know that the series ended up going 10 seasons. We know that now. But originally, Goff and Miller intended the show to last five seasons. The realization that they'd go at least to season six seems like it caused a pretty major sea change for the show. It became pretty apparent to Goff and Miller that they'd have to expand the story in ways that they probably didn't originally intend. Therefore, my conspiracy theory is that Vengeance is Goff and Miller's opening salvo in reinventing Smallville so that it could continue beyond the original intended end point. From here on in, there are gonna, you can expect to see a lot more comic book tropes, costumes, secret identities, characters with superpowers that have nothing to do with kryptonite and whatnot, and basically other things going on as well. Again, there's nothing I can point to as far as evidence. It's just that preliminary meetings about Smallville's future would have started taking place around the time that the script for Reckoning was being written. I'm going to suggest to you that the head of Warner Brothers Television told Goff and Miller that nothing was set in stone at that time, but odds were that Smallville was going to be renewed for season six. And understand, decisions like that are not up to Goff and Miller. The network decides which shows get renewed and which shows get canceled. As showrunners, Goff and Miller can either decide to work on a show or they can decide to not work on a show. But what they can't do is decide whether or not the show must go on or if it's time for everything to come to an end. And that's why it pisses me right off when Goff and Miller get absolutely crucified by some ignorant dickheads out there who seem to think that they should have ended Smallville at some arbitrary point in the show's history. It overlooks the simple fucking reality that any show's future rests not in the hands of the showrunners, but the network. 
If you think Smallville went on too long, take it up with the heads of the WB and the CW, not Goff and Miller. But anyway, as I say, I believe Goff and Miller were told that Smallville was probably going to come back for season six. And so because of that, they wanted to get out in front of this thing and start setting their house in order so as to accommodate additional seasons. And one major element of that would be including more comic book elements and more fantasy-driven stories. Why would they do that? Well, the story they intended to tell, I think, and I think history very much agrees with me on this, the story that they originally intended to tell was set to wrap up right here in the fifth season, but the show would have to go on, and so they'd have to continue Smallville's trajectory of becoming more and more of a science fantasy comic book that had been underway really since the first season. And also, like I say, I think they wanted to stick their foot in those waters by introducing Andrea Rojas, a character from the comics that, let's face it, nobody gives a fuck about. If they royally screwed up Akrata, or the Angel of Vengeance as she's known in this episode, Nobody would have called for Goffin Miller's blood because it's not like Akrata has a huge fan base out there. Anyway, the purpose of this story is pretty self-evident. Andrea represents what Clark can easily become if he lets himself get overwhelmed and swallowed up in his grief and anger over Jonathan's death. People, you have to understand, it's not necessarily a given that Clark is going to become Superman. He has to earn that. And before he can become Superman, Clark needs to know what his other options are. Well, the Angel of Vengeance is a pretty good example of what not to be, don't you think? Anyway, there are a few other odds and ends going on here, too. Speaking of the Angel of Vengeance, several of her musical cues sound awfully familiar to me. You again. I didn't come here for a fight. Well, I'm not wearing dance shoes. I can't be the only one who hears Danny Elfman's Batman theme in there, right? I mean, is it me? Am I the crazy one here? Anyway, that's not the only snappy dialogue that's going on in this episode, though. You checked the last number you dialed? Well, I guess my go-to status has been reinstated. For a while there, I thought maybe I'd been replaced by the leather-clad version. You always change in a phone booth? The janitor was in the bathroom. Anyway, other stuff. Back in Fanatic, Lionel busts Lex's balls a little bit over things slipping by him. Specifically, Lionel was talking about Griff. Now, Lionel never confessed to Griff's murder. He just said that he was able to slip Griff's time bomb against Jonathan Kent away from Lex because Lex wasn't paying attention to all the details. Then, Lionel mockingly gives Lex his copy of The Art of War back and tells Lex to reread it. It looks to me like that's exactly what happened because... Lex realized Lionel's the... He's got to be the one 
who's leading some kind of corporate shenanigans or other. Lionel then compliments Lex on figuring it out. Basically what's going on here is Lionel's trying to retake control of Luther Corp. You might remember that he lost it a few seasons ago, what with murder charges and all. As a matter of fact, Lionel's corporate shenanigans won't just get swept under the rug. He screwed over a lot of people with that Apex deal, and we're going to hear more about that very soon. But anyway, ever since the dreaded fourth season, Lionel's been sidelined away from Luther Corp's main activities. Well, all that shit ends right here. Lionel's determined to retake Luthercorp, and he's exploiting Lex's every weakness in order to make that happen. Lex isn't stupid, though. He realizes there's no completely honest way to stop Lionel, so he resorts to completely dishonest means. Lex blackmails Lionel into backing off, or he'll tell Martha Kent that Lionel visited Jonathan moments before he suffered from a fatal heart attack. Now, moving on to other things, people beat up on Vengeance and really other episodes because of the corporate sponsorship. I honestly think it's a tempest in a tea kettle in most cases. It's mostly a bunch of hipsters with a room temperature IQ bitching about it because they think that that makes them look intelligent or snarky or something for noticing this stuff. But here's the facts. Corporate sponsorship pays for a lot of stuff. Smallville in this era was an expensive show. Reckoning was an expensive episode. Vengeance was also an expensive episode. You usually don't get extremely expensive episodes back-to-back like this. But when it's unavoidable, as it was with Vengeance... The production company can either skimp on effects and production value, or they can take on a corporate sponsor to help ease a few of their costs in exchange for showing, in this case, AccuView contact lenses. So, which, which would you prefer? Seeing the AccuView logo, or not seeing all of those expensive effects with the Angel of Vengeance hopping around buildings, uh, CGI Metropolis skylines, and shit like that. Another fact is that sponsorship deals like this are usually made by the network. The individual production companies are then responsible to figure out ways of working uh, all that stuff, all those arrays of products, working those things in, if they want to take advantage of the corporate largesse. I seriously doubt that Goff and Miller had any involvement with the AccuView deal. They simply knew that they needed extra money for this episode, so they worked a, clim- a, a just a really quick glimpse of the AccuView logo into the episode. Now, excuse me while I take a drink off of my Dr. Pepper. Now, as I say... Goff and Miller knew that they needed extra money for this episode, and so they basically figured out a way to sneak the AccuView logo into a few shots in this episode. And I gotta tell you, if you are sincerely offended by that, please kill yourself immediately. Anyway, so there's some business in Lionel's office where the angel swoops in and tries to kill him. 
basically Snake, the would-be villain of the piece, gave the angel Lionel's name as the person who hired him to start all this trouble. He was bartering for his life, but the angel killed him anyway. And honestly, I just don't buy it. Lionel's deal with Apex was all over the news. It was known that Apex was buying up the local real estate. So it's easy to figure that Snake pretty much just read the news headlines and gave the angel some bullshit story so that she'd leave him alone and go bother someone else. Now, how do I know that? I don't. But Snake wants us to believe that all the muggings and murders were all organized hits. One of their victims was Martha Kent. So, unless someone's trying to argue that Lionel ordered Martha's death, I think we can assume he's innocent of any wrongdoing in this case. Speaking of Lionel, though... Exceptional woman. Grossly misguided. She's been through a lot. Why do I think you saved my life for her sake, not for mine? Whatever the reason. Thank you, son. So in the very next episode after Clark buries Jonathan, Lionel calls him son. No spoilers here, but let's just say that's a preview of coming attractions. Anyway, as an episode, Vengeance wears a lot of its purposes on its sleeve. Clark just lost his father. He's racked with pain and guilt over it, and also a lot of anger. He's got a pretty good idea of how much a role that he played in Jonathan's death. And let's face it, this is not the first time that Clark's ever lost his temper. It's not even the first time that he's been tempted to take someone else's life. But this is the first time Clark would have taken his anger out on someone who truly had nothing at all to do with his pain. When Clark nearly killed Sam Phelan back in Rogue from Season 1, it was because Phelan had Clark's back up against the wall. When Clark nearly killed Tim Westcott back in the dreaded Season 4, it was because Tim had already killed Alicia the Lunatic. In both cases, though, Clark would have been wrong to kill both of those guys, but he was still right to blame them for what happened. It's different with Snake. Jonathan Kent died of a heart attack. Snake had nothing to do with that. But Clark was tempted to take all his shit out on Snake and make him the scapegoat for all of his pain and suffering. And this is new territory for Clark. He's never been here before. Yeah, sure, he makes the right decision in the end. He spares Snake's life. But the issue here is that it's natural for people, even Superman, to get angry, even lose their temper. But where a regular person might have killed Snake anyway, because he's such a piece of shit, Superman can't go there. There are too many occasions to mention where Superman's been tempted to kill someone, even someone who hasn't wronged him personally in any way. The key, though, is that no matter how pissed off Superman gets, he never crosses that line. He always backs away from it. 
Clark, here in Smallville, has never quite faced that situation before. But he faces it here in Vengeance, and he makes the right decision. And this is a big moment for Clark. I'm not trying to be a pain in the ass about it. I'm just saying that this is a situation that Superman faces, at least from time to time. But this is Clark's first time to face it. And whatever mistakes he's made in the history of this show, he makes the right choice here. It's just a good moment. It's what Superman would do, and it just it works perfectly for me. So, anyhow. Now, a couple more tidbits going on here. First, the Angel obviously has a few Superman tendencies going. The mild-mannered disguise, the glasses, changing clothes and phone booths, the secret identity angle, all that stuff. I think you'd be justified in wondering just how much influence she ultimately has on Clark's formulation of the whole Clark-Superman-disguise stuff. Second, another neat item of business here is Lana searching every pawn shop in Metropolis for Jonathan's watch. This is one of the few truly selfless things that Lana's ever done in the history of the show, and it comes on the heels of Clark, at least as far as Lana knows, totally letting her down back in Reckoning, in the second timeline, and then somewhat taking his temper out on her right here in Vengeance. Anyway, Vengeance, as an episode, ends the way grieving and mourning needs to take place, with family remembering the loved one that they've lost and just crying about it. This is the first time that Martha and Clark have really been able to just level with each other and cry. Something else is, Clark dropped out of school for the semester, not because he really needed to, but because he was punishing himself for Jonathan's death. But there are no more excuses here. Clark and Martha watch that home movie of Jonathan and young Clark playing with the tractor, and they just cry. No bullshit, just tears. It's what, it's what they both need, and... Damn it, if you don't get choked up watching that scene, you have no soul. Anyway, so, Tomb, episode 14. Chloe's first haunted and then possessed by a ghost. You know, it's weird. There are times when standalone episodes like Tomb are harder to analyze than season-oriented shows like Solitude or series-oriented shows like Reckoning. And I think the reason for that is because there's usually a lot of plot escalation or massive character arcs that occur in the big episodes. You rarely get low-hanging fruit like that in the standalone episodes, and that's not always a bad thing either. There are times when all you want is just a fun Smallville adventure. It doesn't always need to be some nuanced character study. But once in a while, you get standalone episodes like Tomb that are pretty enjoyable to watch, and also, they're also fairly well-loaded with character. So much so that basically the entire episode counts as deeper themes and implications. For example, take Lana running to Lex for help about what looks like Chloe's nervous breakdown. The last time those two were really around each other, Lex had just forced a kiss on Lana. But kiss or no kiss, 
Lana's got good reasons for going straight to Lex for help. It's not just about Chloe's possible mental issues. Lana's making an understandable decision in going to Lex. He's been a lot more open with her than Clark has, especially lately. In fact, Lex kissed her, and sure, Lana was not receptive to that, but I think that Lana thinks of it from the angle that at least Lex errs on the side of not keeping things from her. And I think of all people, she'd put a premium on that. There's other stuff going on, too. Clark is right to want to stand between Chloe and Lex's team of doctors. If Chloe isn't really going crazy, she doesn't need psychiatric therapy. But if she is going crazy, there's a chance that she could spill Clark's secret. Now, there's also a chance that nobody would believe her. There's a very good chance that everyone would dismiss her as just a wild, raving lunatic. But ask yourself, is that really a chance that Clark would be willing to take? I don't think so. Clark's willing to give Chloe the benefit of every possible doubt. But what if she really is going off the deep end? Well, in that case, Clark could be losing his best friend, his only real confidant, his sidekick, and, oh yeah, one of his secret keepers. But there's another angle to consider here. The last time that Clark was in this kind of situation, it was back in Shattered from the Mighty Season 3 when Lex seemed to be having a psychotic episode. Unlike Chloe, Lex had a history of mental illness, and the evidence sure made Lex look like he'd gone totally crackers. But here's the thing. Clark stuck by his friend. Because of that, he eventually proved that Lex wasn't having psychotic episodes. He was being drugged. Or here's another one. Witness from Season 2. Sure made it look like Jonathan was guilty of shooting Lionel. The evidence pointed to Jonathan as the perpetrator, but Clark eventually proved Jonathan's innocence in spite of some pretty overwhelming odds. In both cases, Clark overruled the evidence and proved that there was a conspiracy at work. Now, my point here isn't just to say that Clark taking uh, Chloe's side in spite of the evidence isn't just good for Clark's character. It's continuity that relates heavily to who he's always been on this show. Clark prizes friends and family above everything. It's not unusual for him to go to bat for the people that he cares about, even when the evidence looks pretty damn bad. So, yes, Clark's got a selfish motivation for keeping Chloe out of Lex's clutches, but there's every reason to think he'd make the same decisions, even if Chloe didn't know his secret. In terms of other things, Lionel drops in for an unannounced visit and comes in through the back door without even knocking. Martha tells him to use the front door and to make sure he knocks. Calling ahead first isn't a bad idea either. 
Now look, let's get down to it. Annette O'Toole and John Glover play incredibly fucking well off each other. Plus, I think it'd be natural for someone like Lionel to be interested in a woman like Martha. She's probably everything that Lionel wanted Lillian Luther to be. Martha isn't just a simple housewife. She was originally a mover and shaker in the corporate world. And because of that, I think that Lionel's smitten with her. He's not easily impressed, but he's had his eye on Martha for a long time now. He and Martha have danced around it for several seasons now, but you can't deny that Lionel's interested in Martha. And you can't deny that Martha isn't at least somewhat impressed with Lionel. That says nothing about her marriage to Jonathan Kent. Martha loved Jonathan. That's why she married him. And she was happy on the farm, but that doesn't mean she can't or won't respond to Lionel in some way. She may not like it. She certainly never acted on it. But you can't argue that Martha isn't worthy of Lionel's affections. And you also can't say that Lionel would never have caught Martha's eye. The issue here is boundaries. Martha knows damn good and well what Lionel really wants. That is what she's bristling at here. Jonathan's body is hardly cold, and here you got Lionel circling the area like a vulture. And Lionel's not an idiot. You don't get to be where he is by being stupid. He knows he needs to use a little bit of a different angle here. And you can be damn sure he'll find one or create one. I'll come back to this in just a bit. As to continuity... Clark spent a fair amount of time in vengeance trying to fix the tractor. He's obviously still working on it here. Now, he's not as handy as Jonathan used to be, and there's really no deeper meaning to that. I just, I, I just thought it was a nice touch, that's all. Still, that does play into the episode's elements of the Kents adjusting to life without Jonathan. Clark pretty much has to take the lead on the farm now. Meanwhile, there's still that state senate seat that somebody needs to fill. And so, in their own ways, Clark and Martha have to not only adjust to Jonathan not being around anymore, which, let's not kid ourselves, that's tough enough. They also have to take his place in the things that he's left behind. The prospect of that scares the shit out of both of them because they're both doing things they never planned to do because they lost the one that they cared about the most. They view taking his place as their duty, but this isn't necessarily what either of them wanted. And that actually brings up a good question. Is that really right for either of them? Tough to say. As a show, Smallville's gonna deal with all the things that Jonathan left on the table, and to varying degrees, how those leftovers affect both Clark and Martha, but there's a strong argument that neither of them is truly moving on. They're simply carrying on in Jonathan's name out of a sense of obligation. And I don't think that's healthy in the long term. In Martha's case, though, there's a certain logic to taking Jonathan's place. 
Kansas needs a state senator. It makes sense for Martha to do this. She's got the brains and the acumen to do the job. I mean, hell, she was a corporate titan in her own right before she ever married Jonathan. And let's not overlook the obvious. Clark's not a kid anymore. He doesn't need the same amount of attention that he used to. Taking over Jonathan's state senate seat makes a lot of sense for Martha. But does taking Jonathan's place as a farmer really make sense for Clark? He's been a really good assistant farmer. And he's been a really good uh, free laborer. But the trajectory of his life was originally going in a very different direction before Jonathan passed away. Taking over Jonathan's farm chores makes absolutely no sense for Clark. So, there's a superficial similarity between Martha and Clark's choices. They're both doing their, their part to fill Jonathan's shoes. The difference, though, is that it makes sense for Martha's skills and talents, but this is the first major indicator that we get in this show's run of just how psychologically dependent Clark is on the Kent farm. It's the only home that he's ever known, and it's his talisman of peace, order, and stability in an increasingly bizarre world. Clark's world gets more and more fucked up every single day, but he always has the old Kent farm to come back to and just do normal things. For Martha, taking Jonathan's place ultimately is a sign of agency and enfranchisement on her part, but for Clark, taking Jonathan's place is a sign of dependency and weakness because it's Clark retreating into the comfortable and the familiar while Martha's seeking out new challenges. Each of them's choosing to pick up where Jonathan left off, but that decision means different things to him, and it says different things about him. They're both covering for Jonathan, but the similarity there is completely superficial. Martha's forging ahead with her life while Clark's hiding from his problems. The rest of Smallville as a TV show is going to play on this deficiency in Clark's psychology, but this is our first concrete sign that Clark's got a lot of issues that he needs to work out. And I'm not talking about Superman here either. We all know there's a way to go for that. No. What I'm saying here is that Clark has a lot of ground that he needs to cover before he can really be a man. Now, to move on to other things, there aren't tons and tons of action set pieces and expensive stunts going on here in Toon. And that's what needed to happen. Reckoning was an anniversary episode. It probably cost a king's ransom to produce because there's a lot of stuff happening on screen. Vengeance probably wasn't a bargain purchase either. There were tons of effects and stunts and location shooting and other shit. And so while Vengeance probably cost less than Reckoning, 
it wasn't done on the cheap either. So, as an episode, Tomb needed to be low cost. That's usually what character out of character episodes are all about. The production company needs an episode where they can refill the piggy bank. That's part of the value of standalone episodes. But standalone episodes can be fun excursions into the Smallville universe, or once in a while they can be textured character pieces. Tomb, as an episode, isn't going to win any awards for being the most action-packed show in Smallville's entire history, but it says a hell of a lot about who these characters are, the lives that they've lived, and what they've been through lately. And if you ask me, that's pretty good for a standalone episode that Al Goff himself called the most boring episode of the entire season. So, episode 15, Cyborg. As the name might suggest, a half-man, half-machine dude called Victor Stone comes to Smallville on the run from Luther Corp. Now, remember what I said just a minute ago about Al Goff and Miles Miller wanting to take Smallville in new, dare I say, more comic book-oriented directions? Well, here you go. Victor Stone is Cyborg from the Teen Titan comics. As with Tomb, what we have here is another standalone episode. Unlike Tomb, though, this is a more adventurous episode. Victor has a problem, and Clark's pretty good at dealing with problems. You do that for me? I kind of got this thing about being experimented on in labs. Sit tight, you should be safe here. Be back as soon as I can. That's a good little callback to basically everything related to Summerhold. Ryan, Lex, and especially Clark himself have all had some pretty negative experiences there. Of course Clark's going to help Victor get away from all that. I mean, think about it. In a lot of ways, Victor's lived Clark's worst nightmare. Clark sees a kindred spirit in Victor based on that alone. If he was down on his luck and didn't have the Kents to help him, who the hell knows what might have happened to Clark? What's to say? Clark wouldn't have been experimented upon his entire life. It's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. So, deeper themes and implications. You know, you don't need to be a lit major to realize that Victor and Catherine are analogs for Clark and Lana. Victor's convinced that Catherine could never accept him as he is. Does she know what actually happened to him? No, he doesn't want her to know. He's afraid how she'll react. Well, what's he gonna do? Just keep lying to her and hope that she doesn't notice how different he is? As it happens, Clark's in no position to argue the merits of telling the girl you love that you're so different from everybody else that you probably don't even qualify as human anymore. Apart from that, just a minute ago, I mentioned that Lionel's interested in Martha, and he's not out just for a cheap lay either. Martha's worthy of Lionel's heart. But back in Tomb, Martha all but chased him out the door, and the reason for that is because he's been a little bit transparent. He was there to mack on Martha, 
But considering she'd only just buried her husband a couple of, uh, of episodes before that, his timing kind of sort of totally sucked. But here in Cyborg, he finds Martha in need of real help. Somebody sends her a DVD. When she watches it, she realizes that somebody's got the Kent family by the balls. She's being blackmailed and doesn't know what to do. Lionel's very good at making problems disappear. Martha knows that Lionel probably knows several ways of getting rid of this blackmailer, so she eventually accepts his help. And Lionel's only too happy to do it, too. Number one, because he wants whatever the blackmailer has on, on Martha for himself. And number two, he wants to prove himself to Martha. Two birds, one stone. After that, you'll notice that Martha changes her tune about Lionel's coming and going on the farm. There's another angle here, though. Again, I usually don't spoil ahead, and I'm certainly not going to spoil ahead now, but there's something coming much later on that'll show that Martha took the lessons of this episode to heart. You longtime Smallville fans probably know what I'm talking about, but... If you're watching the show for the first time along with these retrospectives, and dude, if you're watching the show for the first time along with these retrospectives, freaking let me know, because that'd be freaking sweet. But if you're watching the show for the first time along with these retrospectives, you need to keep this in mind. Remember this moment. It's going to play into Martha's character arc much later on. This is big. It's bigger than you think. Anyway. Something else going on here is Clark's confrontation with Lex regarding the experiments on Victor Stone. At first, Lex plays dumb about it. Or maybe not. This may very well be the first that Lex has ever heard of Dr. Craig and Syntechnics. Uh, it's really just tough to say. The narrative implies that he lied to Clark all along, and maybe that's how I should view it, but either way, Lionel eventually joins forces with Dr. Craig openly. Whether or not that's this, ep uh, whether or not that's this episode, and that's happening for the first time right here, that is irrelevant. The point is, it happens here. When Clark and Lex have their final confrontation about it, Lex tries to lie his way out of it, but eventually he drops the pretenses and all but confesses everything to Clark. That's the first time that something like this has ever happened. Clark usually barges into Lex's office and makes some hellacious accusation. Lex denies it. We eventually find out that Lex was involved in it after all, but there's nothing conclusive for Clark either way. This time's different. Lex goes through the motions of denying Clark's accusations, but eventually comes as close to fessing up as, as he ever does. For once, he admits, or at the very least implies, his involvement. This is a new thing for Lex. Before, 
His policy was lying, 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 and then lie some more. And then lie some more after that. But this time, he never admits guilt. He simply concedes by arguing the merits of what he's accused of. To put it another way, for the first time, Lex isn't concerned with what Clark Kent thinks of him. Before, Lex wouldn't let anything diminish Clark's estimation of Lex as a person, but now he all but admits to doing everything that Clark's accused him of. Now, we're still in certain territory here. Lex is either guilty of or complicit to multiple counts of grave grave robbery, breaking and entering, inhumane medical experiments, kidnapping, and who the hell knows what else, but his ultimate goal in this case is fairly laudable. Understand, there's a progression of Lex's character arc through Smallville. Back in Season 1, Lex was willing to use sketchy methods to accomplish, let's face it, positive goals. That was then. But we're now in territory where Lex is willing to wipe his ass with the law. Now, it's still to accomplish a positive goal. He's just willing to commit crimes to make it happen. Now, Lex still has a way to go before he's the supervillain that he's destined to become. But it seems like every time we turn around, we're seeing Lex embroiled in situations where it's one less step that he'll have to take on his road to villainy. But as I say, through everything, Lex has always tried like hell to protect his image with Clark Kent. No matter what it took, no matter how much it cost, Lex was always willing to use any means necessary to make sure that Clark had a plausible reason to view Lex in nothing but positive terms. Nothing could be allowed to connect him to dastardly deeds and morally bankrupt enterprises. Not until now, that is. In Cyborg, Lex is for the first time shown to be willing to sacrifice even Clark Kent's opinion of him in pursuit of his goals. Now, how much of this is Lex's fault? And how much of it's Clark's? It's tough to argue. Lex knows that Clark knows more about the meteor showers the alien invasions, kryptonite, and tons of other shit than he's told. He knows that Clark's sitting on some kind of major secret, and that it's been hell for Lana, Lex himself, and probably other people. There comes a point when Lex Luthor cuts his losses, and that's where we see Lex and Cyborg. Lex has a job to do. And for the first time, he's not going to let what Clark Kent thinks of him personally interfere with that. Lex and Clark have been on the outs with each other for a really long time now. But even back in the dreaded fourth season, Lex was willing to do whatever it took to preserve his friendship with Clark. Now, not even Clark's disapproval is enough to stop him from pursuing his goals. Now... When you stop worrying what one person thinks of you, that's one less step you have to take to caring what anybody thinks of you. And that itself 
is one less step toward not just not caring about anybody at all. Right now, Lex is already on a very dark path. His methods are what's ultimately sketchy here. What Lex wants is morally positive. What, Le what Lex does to accomplish his goals, though, that's what's horrifying. But for Lex Luthor, the ends always justify the means. And there's only one way that can end. Speaking of Luthers, it eventually comes out that Lionel paid off the blackmailer himself in exchange for what he had on Martha. The blackmailer sent Martha a DVD with security camera footage of Clark rescuing Lana from the warehouse explosion back in lockdown. There's a frame where Clark's face is clearly visible. Just before credits roll for Cyborg, we hear Lionel Luther say, Your secret is safe with me. Hypnotic, episode 16. Simone has a magical who's what's that lets her control other people's minds, and so she forces Clark to dump Lana and kill Lex. Clark only manages to do one of those things, though. Mostly, this is another standalone episode. It's also another character-out-of-character character episode. Even so... Hypnotic moves the ball forward on a lot of things. Hypnotic kicks off with Lana trying and failing to get into Clark's pants. Right as she leaves, Simone drops in on Clark, takes control of his mind using her magical who's what's and immediately gets to second base with him. In other news, there's big doings going on with Milton Fine. We first see him in, in Honduras at the top of the episode where he kills some guys in biohazard suits, steals a blood sample they just collected, and burns the sucker to the ground before super speeding off into the night. Now, Lex has been tracking Milton Fine's movements, specifically in Honduras. He levels with Lana about all of this. I'm going to come back to that later. And later on, Lex runs, uh, runs into Fine in Honduras. Lex thinks finds a government agent researching the spaceship himself. So because of that, they agree to join forces to protect the world from an extraterrestrial threat. And thus is born the Smallville version of the Brainiac Luther team. Deeper themes and implications. You know, for a standalone episode, there's a lot to choose from here. Starting at the bottom of the list, Chloe keeps a kryptonite sample in her desk drawer at the Daily Planet. Now, this is a substance that she knows beyond any shadow of a doubt can kill Clark. And she keeps some in her desk. Now that she knows Clark's secret, she knows that Clark can sometimes lose control. Red kryptonite, silver kryptonite, or even just plain old hypnotism have made Clark change from Jekyll to Hyde. Hell, Chloe was almost killed in a few of those disasters. So, what does it say about Chloe that she keeps shit like this handy? People, this is not meaningless bullshit. This relates to a dimension of Chloe's character. There's gonna come a time 
when we see up close and personal just how far Chloe's willing to go. But this is the first time that she's been anything other than Clark's best friend or his sidekick. Chloe having a stash of kryptonite is the first indication that we get that she's capable of forming her own agenda when she needs to. But, like I say, it'll be quite a while, really, before we, we see this come to fullness. Now, I say this, uh, this is the first time, because we've, we've just never seen, we've never seen Chloe resort to lethal means before. Back in Extinction, from the mighty third season, we saw that she kept a, uh, a file of everybody that she thought might be kryptonite infected. That list put a lot of people in danger. But this is the first time that we've seen Chloe show a ruthless side to her personality. There'll be plenty more of that to come in the future. But anyway, other stuff. Here we are at last. Once again, Lex is letting Lana into his world by cluing her in about goings-on with Milton Fine. Brings her up to date on several items of interest and then calls her his partner in this investigation. Now, again, I've been as annoyed by Lana and Smallville as anybody else, but as best you can, look at all this stuff from her point of view. Throughout this whole series, but especially this season, and I would say especially this episode, Lana knows that Clark is keeping things from her. Throughout the, the fifth season, she's started understanding that Clark's sitting on a major secret, and whatever it is, it's so big that he fears it'll damage their relationship. He's also been incredibly distant with her. She regularly gets shot down when she offers Clark a good old-fashioned pole cleaning, and that can only happen so many times before you just give up. On top of all that, he has these weird, fucked-up episodes where he goes completely insane for a little while, goes out of his way to piss her off, and then tries like hell to act like nothing happened later on. He even dumps her in this episode when Lana catches him about to boff some trashy new girlfriend that he's just picked up. Meanwhile, though, Lex updates Lana on the movements of Milton Fine and his efforts to track down the spaceship from arrival. It's revealed early on that Simone works for Lex. He blackballed her into doing his bidding. She has essentially two jobs. First, figure out a way to break Lana and Clark up. Second, find out what Clark's secret is. Simone accomplishes both of those little tasks on the same night. But what's interesting here is that Lex has crossed the line more than once to find out what Clark's hiding from everybody. For example, he hired Roger Nixon to spy on the Kents back in season one. Later, at one point, he had a shrine dedicated to his investigation locked up inside his mansion. Later from that, he hired forensic scientists and physicist to, dis to investigate the, the bridge crash that Clark saved him from, and a, and a ton of other things. So, when you think about it, the only real new thing here is that Lex is resorting to mind control to uncover Clark's secret. 
that's the next logical step for him. Still, keep in mind that Lex tested Clark's limitations back in Mortal. Clark was injured when he broke into the Luthercourt plant and when those thugs took Martha and Jonathan hostage. I mean, later on, Clark beat the shit out of Lex over it. Those and other things should have been enough to convince Lex that he might have been wrong about Clark having some kind of superhuman powers. But Lex's uh, uh, obsession on this knows no limits. He knows a con job when he sees one. And some evidence to the contrary, Lex is convinced that Clark's hiding something. Something huge. So, the issue here isn't that Lex is willing to go to incredibly unethical and immoral lengths to uncover Clark's secret. What matters is that he's still pursuing Clark's secret, even though he's seen what should have been ironclad proof from back in Mortal earlier this season that Clark doesn't have powers. And even when Simone tells Lex flat out that there's nothing special about Clark, he refuses to believe it. Something else new in all this is that Hypnotic marks the first time that Lex has taken an active hand to break Clark and Lana up so that he can pursue her for himself. That alone is a completely new thing, but on top of that, Lex is perfectly okay with Simone trying to rape Clark so long as Lex gets Lana in the end. Guys, it doesn't matter that a lot of people might love a night with some chick as trashy as Simone. It doesn't matter that she and Clark probably enjoyed it in the moment. Rape is rape. And as best I can tell, what Simone tried to do with Clark is basically rape. Lex ordered someone to rape someone else just so he could get what he wants. Just let that sink in for a minute. Now, yes, Clark later tells Chloe that he and Simone never actually knocked boots. Doesn't matter. That's what Lex ordered Simone to do, so irrespective of what did or didn't happen, that doesn't change what Lex wanted to happen. Apart from that stuff, though... So then the moral of the story is just never gaze into the eyes of a seductive woman wearing a sparkly gemstone around her neck. Unless, of course, her name is Lana Lang. Have you talked to her yet? Are you guys kiss and make up? You haven't talked to her, have you? No. What are you waiting for? I mean, she knows that you were hypnotized. And besides, like, every single one of us has gone through some sort of an identity crisis at one point or another. It's like a rite of passage in Smallville. She'll understand. Yeah, it's Chloe saying that. But at the same time, it's true. Weird, fucked up things like this happening are accepted as part of life in Smallville. It's tough to say just how well known this is, though. Does the entire state of Kansas know how, how weird Smallville is? The country? The world? It's hard to know. But what's for sure is that back in the first season, goings-on with people like Simone would be the weirdest thing that anybody's ever heard of. But now that we're in season five, stuff like this happens every Tuesday. It's not thought of as all that unusual when stuff like this happens. Hell, I wouldn't be surprised if employers are starting to offer meteor days, where their employees are allotted three days off each year for meteor infections. I mean, that can't be too far off, right? My point here is 
The fantastic is starting to become everyday reality in Smallville, and people are adjusting to it. I say all this because it's important to understand that the nature of reality is gradually being adjusted with each passing season in Smallville. Now, not to get too specific or too spoilery or anything, but season 10 goes in some pretty heavy science fairy tale kinds of directions, and the rest of the world eventually formulates a response. That is how common this stuff is ultimately going to become. And by the time we get there, things will have gradually changed so much that heavy science fiction type shit is going to be so commonplace that even something as extreme as costumed supervillains or alien invasions are going to be regarded the same way that you and I think of tornado outbreaks. I mean, it sucks when it happens, but it's not like it's never happened before or won't happen again. So, like I said, the ball gets moved forward here on a lot of things. Lana and Clark break up. Lex is perfectly okay with Clark getting raped as long as he gets Poo-Tang from Lana out of it. And we're shown once more just how much the world's changed in Smallville since the pilot. This is why I don't call standalone episodes like this filler. Anyway, so that's pretty much it for this one. Time for another break. Is your entire life populated with liars? Ever wondered if you're talking to somebody who's completely full of shit? Well then, have we got the app for you. Juked Micronics is proud to present the Lie Detector app. Yes, as seen on TV, the Juked Micronics Lie Detector app is here. And does it work? Bet your balls it works. All you have to do is turn on the Lie Detector app, Hold your phone up to your Mark's mouth and ask them to repeat their last statement. And within mere moments, the Juked Lie Detector app will tell you if your Mark fed you a line of total horse shit, or if they're telling you more truth than a 9-11 conspiracy video. The Juked Micronics Lie Detector app. Perfect for job interviews, Al-Qaeda terrorist interrogations, and double-checking your teenage daughter's alibi. The Lie Detector app, now available from Juked Micronics. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. 
You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. Yeah.